We left off with the state resting their case, having laid out their trial strategy during their case in chief, which was, in a nutshell, that Gacy wasn't insane, but instead was a methodical, conniving man who planned his every move. And these qualities cannot coexist within a person whose mind is irreparably broken. That type of duality simply does not, cannot exist within a human being. The defense must now attempt to convince the jury that a human being such as that not only can exist, but in fact does. The defense for its first witness calls Jeff Rignall, who the state refused to put on the stand because he wrote and published a book about his harrowing, nightmarish tale prior to trial. His testimony was gut-wrenching, and you've heard all the details of the attack during the pod. You've also heard about how the Chicago police refused to believe him and or chose to ignore him, and how he ultimately had to track down his attacker on his own. Rignall became so upset during his testimony that he wept and vomited while he was on the stand while recounting his attack. The most crucial aspect of Rignall's testimony was, when in describing Gacy at the time of the attack, is that he became an entirely different person. It was Rignall's opinion that Gacy could not conform his conduct to the requirements of the law, that he was driven by a force out of his control to purge the demons from one soul because he was so disgusted by the sexual acts that had just taken place. The defense next calls Gacy's neighbor Lillian Grexa, who testifies that Gacy was friendly, loving, affectionate, genuine, and a hardworking man. She thought he was a good husband and father. And she did not believe that the John Gacy that she knew was crazy. Next up was Michael Reed. Reed had originally met Gacy as a paid sexual partner in 1971. He ultimately ended up working for and living with the creep for about six months. He testifies that when he first saw a picture of Gacy in a chef's jacket in his house, that Gacy claimed that was not him, but his twin brother Jack. Reed testified about the bizarre attack that happened in the garage, where completely unprovoked, Gacy grabbed a hammer and violently struck Reed on the head twice. It wasn't until Reed put his hands up and begged Gacy to stop that Gacy snapped out of it and did in fact stop. Gacy told him that he had no idea what had come over him. Reed testified that he did not believe that Gacy knew what he was doing at that time. James Van Voris was then called to testify. He was another friend and business associate of Gacy's. He, like Grexa, had nothing but glowing things to say about the creep. Salt of the earth he is. Salt of the earth. Are you starting to see a pattern in the witnesses as they're being called? Violent psychotic attack victim. He's a wonderful guy witness. Violent psychotic attack victim. He's a hardworking, responsible businessman and family man witness. The pattern has a real Jekyll and Hyde vibe, no? Well, that would be Amaranti's theme in his closing, which was that Gacy was the living embodiment. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So now that the defense has established that, in fact, it appears that Gacy is completely normal at one moment, and then without warning or provocation becomes a violent lunatic, the defense begins calling their expert witnesses to try and explain to the jury why exactly this is happening and what is causing it. The first expert that they call to try to get through to the jury is Dr. Thomas Alessio, who is a clinical psychologist. He examined Gacy for an extended period of time and found him to be a very disordered person with psychotic symptoms. His diagnosis was that Gacy has a surface personality of paranoid schizophrenia and an inner personality of paranoid schizophrenia. Alicio testified that as a result, Gacy lacked the capacity to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. So when Alicio starts going into his diagnosis of Gacy, the jury's collective eyes glaze over because at the end of the day, it's just words. And the diagnosis doesn't explain why. The defense is smart enough not to keep running one doctor after another up to the stand because they will completely lose the jury. And that's if they have them at all, which I firmly believe that they do not. So they next call the creep's second ex-wife, Carol Lawford. 
Carol gets on the stand and she testifies that she was married to Gacy from 72 to 76 and that she has known John since childhood. And she also knew John's father, who she said was incredibly demanding and strict and that he yelled at John all of the time when he was a boy. And it was her feeling that the John that she knew, she believed that he was sane. She further testified on Mother's Day of 1975 that the creep told her after they had sex that this would be the last time that they would ever have sex. She testified after the divorce in 1976 that in May of 1978, she began dating him again. What? And that one evening, that while they were in the throes of passion, that Gacy broke down and began crying, telling her, that he was afraid that he was going, quote, the other way, end quote, meaning that he was gay. The defense here is beginning to lay a foundation that Gacy's father was extremely abusive and that consistent pattern of abuse planted the seeds for what he would ultimately become. It's the nature versus nurture argument. And quite simply, there is no definitive answer to that question. It's all theory. But maybe, just maybe, if, say, they had an incredibly mentally ill patient that they could study for years, we could get some answers. Next to the stand is Paul Hardy, who is a deputy at Cermak Memorial, where Gacy was housed. He testified that on one occasion he observed Gacy rip the needles of an EKG machine out of his arm and knock the machine to the ground. Next up was John Lucas, the owner of the Shell gas station, He told the jury that on one occasion that Gacy had told him that he was working with the FBI to protect First Lady Rosalind Carter. This witness was used to establish that Gacy was suffering from delusions of grandeur. But there's a difference between one who says something simply because they are a braggart, prone to bullshit, and someone who says something outrageous and actually believes it to be true. I don't believe that at any point that Gacy believed that he was an agent tasked with protecting the First Lady. The defense then calls another living victim to the stand, Marion Gacy, John's mother. Now, I'm a father of four, and I love my children unconditionally, but my God, what must it feel like to know that you've given birth to one of the most vile creatures to ever inhabit the planet? This poor soul takes the stand and tells the jury about Gacy's childhood, including the stashing of his mother's undergarments under the front porch when he was two or three years old. She recalls the stories of John's father punching her in the face for no apparent reason at the dinner table with young John and his sister Karen sitting there watching it happen. The children obviously were hysterical. She grabs the kids and leaves the house and goes to her sister's where she remains for a couple of days. And then, of course, she goes back to her abuser. She told of the time that Gacy was struck in the head with a swing and was concussed from the blow. She further testifies to multiple other blows to the head that Gacy had endured, including falling down three flights of stairs when he was 11 or 12 years old. Now, she continues to inform the jury of an occasion where Gacy was hospitalized for over a month after he was found unconscious in his bedroom. She detailed that when John was in high school that he continued to pass out for unexplained reasons, She was told at that time that she should send her teenage son to Chicago to be evaluated in a psych ward, which she chose not to do. Oops. The passing out spells continued for years until one day John told his mother that he was going out to put air in the car's tires. And he vanished for three months with his whereabouts unknown until one day she received a phone call that he was in Las Vegas, Nevada. While in Vegas, he was working in a mortuary where he also slept on a cot. I know what you're thinking. So Gacy came home soon thereafter, and he then married his first wife, Marlon Myers, with whom he had two children. She told of when Gacy was arrested in Iowa and received a sentence of 10 years, which we all know he did 18 months on, She then tells of his release from prison and how he had never seen his two kids. Marion talks of the years that she lived with her son at 8213 Somerdale, his marriage to Carol, and her moving out. 
Mata Sr. then circles back to John Sr. And she describes how he would get home from work every day and go directly to the basement to drink. She tells the jury that when John Sr. was drinking alone in the basement, that she would hear him talk, then answer himself, except with two different voices. She called him Jacqueline Hyde. Pretty convenient. When he was sober, he was the nicest person in the world. When he was drunk, he was the meanest. And he was always after John for what she called, quote, his little ways, end quote. John Sr. was both verbally and physically abusive to his young son for the entirety of his childhood. She told the jury that he never showed Gacy any love or affection and that he was cold-blooded. She looked at each of the jurors and expressed to them that she loves her son and that she knew that John loved her. My father's last question for Marion Gacy was, how did you feel when you heard the news about your son? Her answer, quote, I still don't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe he would do anything like that. Not my son. End quote. The defense then calls Gacy's sister, Karen Kuzma, who testifies that her brother is not evil, that he's sweet and loving and understanding and generous. She echoes her mother's sentiments about John Sr. She also substantiates that John Sr. would attack her brother, both physically and mentally, for no reason throughout his entire childhood. Two of the creep's childhood friends were then called to testify. Both of these men testify consistently with both Marion and Karen as to John Sr.'s abusive conduct towards John during his entire childhood. Now, these witnesses are considered to be foundational witnesses as they all collectively tell the stories of the injuries, the abuse, the medical conditions that Gacy suffered throughout his childhood and which every expert that evaluated Gacy relied on when diagnosing what was wrong with them. They give the jury context, and they are people that the jury can relate to, as opposed to the next three doctors who will be taking the stand to wrap up the defense's case in chief. These men, Dr. Lawrence Friedman, a psychiatrist from the University of Chicago, Dr. Robert Traceman, a clinical psychologist, and Dr. Richard Rappaport, another forensic psychiatrist, are all exceptionally learned men and all of them may as well been from an alien race because nothing that they would testify to would be comprehended or accepted by the jury. The defense had to put them on because it was required under the law in order to support an insanity defense. But the fact of the matter is that everything that they would testify to would be lost in translation. So the parade of doctors begins with the defense calling Dr. Lawrence Friedman. He goes on to explain to the jury how he was able to reach the conclusion that Gacy is suffering from pseudoneurotic paranoid schizophrenia. He believes that Gacy was a man with a core of paranoid schizophrenia, but who has a neurotic defense mechanism which masks the underlying psychosis. It was asked early on whether he believed that an expert witness in general should give an opinion on whether a defendant does or does not meet the criteria for judging sanity. He states unequivocally that they should not. And because of that belief, he refuses to render an opinion on whether or not the standard was met. Now, Friedman examines the creep and he forms the opinion that Gacy has a great fear of being a homosexual. He testifies that Gacy developed serious anxiety, which he would deny about his sexual identity. Throughout his life, he tried to establish relationships with women and that he had his first gay sexual experience during his first marriage around the time of the birth of his first child. He further states that Gacy consistently denied being a homosexual, always claiming to be a bisexual, and would get very angry when he was described as a homosexual. Friedman theorizes that the fear of being a homosexual was reflected in the self-loathing which was projected onto others, with whom Gacy thought in his paranoia 
loathed him and against whom he lashed out to defend himself against the other hating person. Now, that is a direct quote. And how many of these nice folks from rural Rockford, Illinois, do you think had any clue what this guy was talking about? Right, none of them. Friedman claims that John projected his own deep shame at his homosexual behavior onto the decedents so that they appeared to him to be trashed, to be put out of their misery. And he believed that covering up the crimes was consistent with paranoid schizophrenia because those who suffer from it view the world as their enemy, which in turn, they must protect themselves from. Friedman believes that the preparing of the graves ahead of time was also a self-protective measure, at least through the eyes of a paranoid schizophrenic. Dr. Robert Traceman is next. He's another clinical psychologist. He explains what he reviewed in terms of the creep's medical background and spoke of how he interviewed Gacy for hours to gather all of the information about his upbringing. He forms the opinion that Gacy was a paranoid schizophrenic with homosexual conflicts, a marked feeling of masculine inadequacy, sexual confusion, lack of empathy, and an alarming lack of emotional control, and under stress with a strong potential for emotional or ego disintegration and expressions of very hostile, dangerous impulses. Yeah, you think that jury's getting that? It's not happening. His formal diagnosis was that Gacy was a paranoid schizophrenic with a sociopathic personality and that it was possible, absolutely possible, that Gacy, while suffering from the mental illness, could appear normal to the people that he knew. The defense's final witness in their case-in-chief is Dr. Richard Rappaport. Now, Rappaport tells the jury that he had run a battery of tests, psychological and otherwise, and examined Gacy for a total of 65 hours over a period of five months, for between three and three and a half hours at a time. He interviewed Gacy's family, he reviewed Traisman's report, had a complete neurological exam done, an electroencephalogram, a brain scan, and a chromosomal analysis done. He studied past medical records and the police reports. In other words, he was thorough as hell. More than any other expert for either side, Rappaport dove in, trying to figure out what the hell was going on with this guy. Ultimately, he diagnoses Gacy as suffering from borderline personality, a serious mental illness. It's the equivalent term to pseudo-neurotic paranoid schizophrenia. Now, Rappaport believes that because of this disease, Gacy was unable to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law at the times of the crimes. Much like Friedman, Rappaport referred to the process of the defendant projecting his repressed parts onto others he then raged against. With respect to the rigorous psychological testing he put Gacy through, he presented the jury with the following, that Gacy showed a marked discrepancy between his verbal and mechanical IQ scores, which reflected the possibility of a thought disorder. He further testifies that Gacy did well in structured psychological tests, but the more abstract, unstructured tests, he tended to give bizarre, illogical, and meager answers, all of which was indicative of psychosis. He determined from the brain scans that Gacy apparently had no organic disorders, but nevertheless had an extensive medical history of fainting and psychosomatic heart attacks without any medical evidence to support these complaints. Now, we've spoken to Dr. Rappaport, who, not so coincidentally, I used to evaluate the subject of season two, Dr. Anthony Garcia, in order to see if he would be able to translate all of these massive medical terms into something we can digest. Because frankly, they all just mean crazy to me. And we need more to try and understand who Gacy was and why he did what he did. This is Dr. Richard Rappaport. I'm a forensic psychiatrist. I've been in practice for over 50 years. I went to the University of Pennsylvania as an undergrad. I graduated there in 1958. I went to Chicago Medical School, and I uh, was there for four years, plus I went uh, one year after that for an internship at Michael Reese Hospital, 
which was uh, at the hospital no longer in existence. But uh, while I was there, I was drafted into the Air Force. I went to the Air Force for two years. I spent the two years in uh, Texas, in Shepard Air Force Base, Wichita Falls, Texas. And I was in psychiatry at that time, but I had not yet had my residency. So when I finished uh, in the Air Force, I went back to Chicago to to uh, Michael Reese Hospital, what they had Psychosomatic and Psychiatric Institute uh, under uh, Roy uh, Grinker's uh, leadership. I spent three years in that, and then I went out into practice in, in um, Chicago. I practiced full-time uh, treatment practice plus part-time forensic practice. While I was a resident at um, Michael Reese, we were, we were required to do a, we had to do a research project. So I, I wanted to do, I wanted to do some work in uh, group therapy in, in, a, in, a, in a prison. So I started a group therapy program at Statefield Prison, uh, which is uh, outside of Chicago. And I, I was supposed to be there for uh, one year, and they liked it so much that I went for five years. Uh, because of my work in the prison, uh, I became somewhat known around the Chicago area uh, as a forensic psychiatrist. And I was called by Amaranti uh, to become a uh, witness or a psych expert during examination of John Wayne Casey. He was he was apprehended in 78, and so that's about when I was called. And um, I began to do um, uh, my evaluation of uh, John Wayne Gacy. He was at the time hospitalized at um, Turnmack Memorial Hospital, and I arranged to see him a couple of times a week. I think I went there twice a week and I, over a period of a uh, number of months. Seeing him and seeing his family together a total of about 65 hours. I actually saw him in his cell uh, without a guard present. Uh, he was very affable. Uh, he had no problem talking to me, and he was open. Uh, I'm very frank about his behavior. At the same time, he wasn't telling the truth most of the time. Uh, he said he would tell me about a crime he committed and then deny it. And he would also say that he had. Um, had other people who were doing whatever he was accused of, whatever he was accused of, he had guys working for him that did that did their dirty work. In other words, that they were killing killing the people that he was accused of killing, and he was burying them under his house. Uh, he discovered that kind of thing on his own from the odor. He was living above all those dead bodies. The, 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 the crucial the, the crucial element uh, was the idea of brief psychotic episodes. In other words, most people who are psychotic are psychotic for years. They're psychotic for hours, if not years or months. This was a state where he could go into a brief psychotic episode and not remember it or not behave normally and yet reinstitute his normalcy. He could become normal again. And that was what is recognized in the field of psychiatry as a true disorder. Now, there are other people who have been diagnosed as borderlines that don't have this particular second, second life, so to speak, in those, in, with those episodes. But there are people who have, can testify to the fact that they've had psychotic episodes that don't last more than a few hours or, or days. And that's what was critical in, in allowing me to make that diagnosis. Otherwise. I would have never thought of it. I mean, here's a guy who's, who's going about a business where he's, he's making $100,000 or a couple hundred thousand dollars a year talking to people who are very public uh, people. He would have 300 people at his house, and a lot of them were politicians, a lot of them were small-time small um, you know, operators and so forth, and, and he was able to converse with them normally. That's not a uh, – psychotic people don't do that. Psychotic people are, are are hard to deal with, hard to talk to, hard to rationalize with. They they they're not normal all the time. This was a brief. This is where there was an interlude. So, in other words, it was a disorder that was that existed otherwise, but was applied to this criminal case. And I think that it fit very well, and still does right now. I still believe it was an accurate diagnosis, but it wasn't easy, easy to convince the jury 
or something so unusual. It's like we made it up just to fit it. And so they didn't accept the verdict. I wasn't surprised. You know, the the, the, the uh, prosecution made fun of me. And uh, they made fun of the diagnosis. And it wasn't, it wasn't a popular thing because it was so hard to understand. So Rappaport, to this day, still believes that Gacy simply could not conform his conduct to the requirements of the law, which is significant because he no longer is on the clock as a hired gun for the defense, which gives his opinion, weight, and credibility. At the conclusion of Rappaport's testimony, the defense rests. But, ladies and gentlemen, the trial is not over. No, before closing arguments begin, the state has the opportunity to put on rebuttal witnesses. This is the state's chance to put on witnesses whose testimony will directly rebut what was said by the defense witnesses. Kunkel and the state put on a mix of lay witnesses and mental health experts to bring the jury back to their side, if in fact they ever left. The state first calls Russell Schroeder, who testifies that he met the creep in Waterloo, Iowa, back in 1966. He tells the jury that he and Gacy had robbed a lumber store together. Gacy had hired him in 1968 to beat up Donald Voorhees, who's the young man that Gacy raped and was in prison for doing so, in order to convince the boy not to testify against Gacy at trial. The state then calls Richard Westfall, who testifies that when he was an employee of Gacy's back in Waterloo at Kentucky Fried Chicken, that Gacy had told him that if he ever caught him with his wife, that he would owe him a blowjob. He then completed the weirdness when he testified that he had spent the night at Gacy's residence and that Marlene had crawled into bed with Westfall and they had sex, after which time Gacy came into the room and said that he had caught him. So he was going to have to pay off the bet. The state then puts on Lionel Murray, Gacy's counselor at Anamosa Prison, where Gacy was doing time for the sodomy charge. He tells the jury that after Gacy's father passed away and while he was in prison and Gacy was not given a furlough to attend the funeral, that psychological testing showed an increased pathology within the creep's mind. Another KFC employee, Edward Lynch, testified that in August or September of 67, while at Gacy's house, the creep showed him a porno, and then he came at him with a carving knife, which Gacy suddenly dropped and apologizes profusely for attacking him. Gacy then throws on another porno and then proceeds to tie Lynch up behind his back, push him face down on a bed, and begins choking him. Lynch begins to pass out and loses control of his bladder. Gacy stops killing him and drives him home. The state then calls Dr. Leonard Heston, who back in 1968 in Iowa, pursuant to court order, performed a mental examination of Gacy after he was sentenced to prison for the 10 years. His diagnosis back then was that Gacy was an antisocial personality, also known as a sociopath or a psychopath. On cross-examination, Heston admits that he had not evaluated Gacy since his initial evaluation back in 68. He also admits that everyone who examined Gacy for this trial came up with more complex personality structures than he had. The state then calls Robert Donnelly to testify. He tells a horrifying tale of how in 1977, Gacy forced him into his vehicle by gunpoint. He handcuffed him and drove him to his house where Gacy proceeds to force liquor down his throat, pushed him on a couch, pulled down his pants, anally raped him, put something around his neck, and twisted it. Yet, he didn't kill him. Instead, he took him and he plunged his head into a sink filled with water. He then again forces him to watch another gay porno. Then, he has him play Russian roulette. Holy shit. But the creep isn't done. Casey then bounds and gags him, places some type of object up his anus, and then Casey tells him that he's going to kill him. But he doesn't. Instead, he drives him downtown and tells him to get out of the car. Donnelly testifies that Casey appeared calm and not crazy at all. What? 
The state then called Chicago cop Ted Janus, who questioned Gacy in January of 78 about what Donnelly just testified to. Gacy told Janus that it was consensual slavery sex and that he was supposed to pay Donnelly, but that he never did. He goes on to tell the jury that Gacy was never charged and that Donnelly had just testified to much more than he had told him two years ago. Par for the course, as far as Chicago police are concerned, with their handling of all things Gacy. Now, if you're wondering why the state is starting to put witnesses on in rebuttal that do testify to Gacy attacking them and releasing them, it's because Bill Kunkel believed then and believes now that Gacy was driven by the godlike power to choose between life and death for his victims. Mental illness had nothing to do with it. And these victims were proof of exactly that. The state then called Dr. Arthur Hartman. He administered psychological tests on Gacy and concluded that he was a psychopathic or antisocial personality with sexual deviation and minor symptoms or characteristics of paranoid hysterical reactions. He also determined that the defendant had never had a mental breakdown or mental disease of the type that we consider a psychotic condition. Hardman also found great psychosexual conflict within Gacy. And then on cross-examination, he admitted that it was possible that Gacy's psychosexual conflict could be so extreme at times that it could compel him to kill. Dr. Robert Reifman was next. He was a psychiatrist and was the director of the Psychiatric Institute of the Circuit Court of Cook County. Reifman spent a mere 16 hours examining Gacy over a period of five weeks. His final diagnosis was a personality disorder, class, narcissistic type. He concluded that this is not a mental disease. He further testified that the antisocial personality is a subtype of narcissistic personality disorder. During cross-examination, Reifman testified that he thought that Dr. Hartman was wrong in his statement that Gacy has compulsive and paranoid elements to his personality. He also admitted that he did not interview any of the family members or friends. Reifman also disagreed with Dr. Hartman's analysis that Gacy was unwilling to accept his homosexuality. Rather, Reifman felt that Gacy accepted his homosexuality and had no stress regarding it. Reifman was also under the mistaken belief that everyone in Gacy's neighborhood knew that he was gay and that Gacy didn't care that they knew. Reifman ultimately conceded that the symptoms of narcissism are similar to those of borderline personality. The state then called Dr. David Guerin, a clinical psychologist and specialist in clinical neuropsychology, which is a subspecialty in which abnormalities caused by organic brain disorders are studied. With respect to Gacy, Guerin found no evidence of any organic brain disorders. Guerin testified that he was not asked to look for evidence of non-organic mental disorders. Yet, Kunkel, over objection, is permitted to ask Dr. Guerin if he found any evidence of paranoid schizophrenia. Guerin first confirms that he had not looked at non-organic mental disorders, but then he answers no anyway. Dr. Richard Rogers is called next. He is a clinical psychologist who worked for the Isaac Ray Center at Rush Press St. Luke's Medical Center. His diagnosis was that Gacy was suffering from an obsessive compulsive disorder and hypomanic disorder with some evidence of sexual sadism. And yet another doctor is called by the state to say that Gacy is not insane. This time, it's James Cavanaugh. He's a psychiatrist and the medical director of the Isaac Gray Center. Kavanaugh examined Gacy for a total of 18 hours between September and November of 79. He diagnoses Gacy as having a mixed personality disorder with several components. A pervasive narcissism with an obsessive-compulsive quality and an antisocial quality and a hypomaniac quality. Kavanaugh also notes that Gacy did not meet enough of the criteria for antisocial personality disorder for such a diagnosis to be valid, which is why he diagnosed the defendant as having a mixed personality disorder. It was his opinion that this is not a mental disease such as to prevent Gacy from appreciating the criminality of his conduct or conforming his conduct to the requirements of the law. 
Now, my father on cross-examination asks Dr. Kavanaugh the following question. Dr. Kavanaugh, do you believe that Mr. Gacy needs to be in a mental hospital? Answer, I do not believe that he would benefit from treatment. Stunningly, Kavanaugh went so far as to declare that John Gacy was not a danger to others, and thus he could not be civilly committed if he were acquitted by reason of insanity. He testified that if Gacy was committed and he was to be the examining doctor at the institution to which he was committed, that he would release Mr. Gacy. With this statement, the defense table exploded, objecting and calling for a mistrial. Now, if the defense had made any headway whatsoever during this battle of the experts, which, if we're being honest, is highly unlikely, it had now vanished like a fart in the wind. All the jury needed to hear was that if they found him not guilty by reason of insanity, that there existed a possibility that he could be released back into the public. The trial was over. Game, set, and match. And I'm not saying this in jest, because that concept is impossible to overcome. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, you cannot unring a bell. Now, there was extended argument at this point by both sides, and the judge weighed in. And Garippo aptly noted that the defense did not object until after Kavanaugh gave his answer. So the debate focused on whether Mata Sr., during his opening remarks, made the declaration that if Gacy was found innocent by reason of insanity, that he would be in an institution for the rest of his life. And if he did, he opened the door to allow for the state to correct that assertion because the law in Illinois does not allow for that. The law states that if the defendant is deemed no longer to be suffering from a mental illness, he must be released. Mata Sr. contends that he didn't guarantee anything of the sort, but merely said that he belongs in a mental institution for the rest of his life. Therefore, he did not open the door. The state did. And because of that reason, the court should grant a mistrial. I must say that I believe the Garippa ruled incorrectly here, but a mistrial is a huge ask. And in terms of weighing the pros and cons of granting the mistrial and doing the whole thing over again, including importing another jury in from Rockford, he was willing to take the chance that the appellate court would eventually agree with him, which ultimately they did. At this point, the state's rebuttal case is done. Now, the defense, believe it or not, has one last play. They are allowed to call witnesses to rebut what the state's witnesses just testified to. Are you starting to wonder, when, if ever, does a trial end? And after the sort of rebuttal witnesses are called, that's it. The proofs are closed, and no more evidence may be introduced. Then come closing arguments. For their final two witnesses, the defense calls first Dr. Helen Morrison, another psychiatrist, who examined the creep for 50 hours over a three-month period. She read all the reports and interviewed family members and Jeff Rignall in order to prepare her report. Her final diagnosis at trial was mixed or atypical psychosis, which she testified was consistent with a diagnosis of pseudo-neurotic paranoid schizophrenia or borderline personality. She also found the presence of primitive defense mechanisms such as splitting and projection and the presence of hypochondriasis and the ability to function well in structured situations. And finally, she found that he had a lack of affect. She also testified that she believed that Gacy had been suffering from mixed psychosis since at least 1958. It was her testimony that as a result of his mental disease, that he was unable to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. And as an interesting aside to Helen Morrison, she currently is in possession of Gacy's brain, which is contained in a jar and sits on a shelf in her office. It takes all kinds. For their final witness, the world-renowned Tobias Broker, a psychiatrist and neurologist from the Menager Foundation in Topeka, Kansas, was called. In the world of shrinks, this guy was a rock star, an absolute legend. Broker had read all the relevant records and reviewed the reports of the other experts. 
along with examining Gacy personally. His diagnosis was that Gacy was suffering from a borderline condition. He described as a type of paranoid schizophrenia. He echoed the other experts in terms of Gacy's flat affect, his tangential speech, his delusional attitudes, and his compulsiveness. Broker stated that this was a totally unconscious process and stated further that the unconscious motivations which resulted from his illness created impulses which quite simply were beyond his control. And because of that, he was unable to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. So at this point, the defense is done. They get no more witnesses, they get no more evidence in. The state, however, as always, gets the last word at trial. And for their final witness, they call Dr. Jan Fawcett, a psychiatrist and the chairman of the psychiatric department at Rush Press St. Luke's, of which the Isaac Ray Center is a part. He also happens to be Dr. Kavanaugh's superior. He ultimately concurs with Dr. Kavanaugh's diagnosis of mixed personality disorder with alcohol and drug abuse, which he did not feel was a mental disease. He also felt that the defendant could appreciate the criminality of his conduct and conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. With that, the state was done. They had produced five expert witnesses that testified exactly as would be expected, which is no shock, as that's simply how it goes at trial. The experts typically cancel each other out. One side says he is, one side says he isn't. If it seems a bit disingenuous, that's because it is. You have hired guns on one side who are paid to provide an opinion, and the expectation is that they will testify as to what is needed from the defense's perspective. Now, the same exact issue exists for the state, as they typically use experts that are extensions of the government side of things. Pile on top of that, that lawyers from both sides spend a bulk of their time during cross-examination demonstrating to the jury that the witness is biased either because they are paid to render an opinion or because they are nothing more than an arm of the state. Again, the search for truth in a criminal case is a murky one. Now, as far as credentials go, the lineup of head doctors that both sides presented at trial was a rather lopsided affair, with the defense trotting out a veritable team of who's who's and the state coming to the match with many doctors that did not carry the credentials of the defense's witnesses, but did possess the experience of examining thousands of criminals collectively over their careers. But in the end, would it matter? Long after the trial, in one of the only interviews he ever did, Judge Garippo on American Justice said the following, which is right on time. I think jurors sit back and they say, look, Based on this evidence, do I think this person is uh, insane or don't I think? And they, I don't think they pay as much attention to the experts in an insanity defense as the lawyers think they do. With that, the end is nigh, as the only matter of business left to attend to are closing arguments. Now, as far as closing arguments go, the state goes first, followed by the defense, and then it ends with the state once again getting the last word. Now, it would be Terry Sullivan who would speak first on behalf of the state. And our position with respect to Sullivan's closing is this. He has dodged us for the entirety of the podcast, and we can understand why that may be. But in light of that, we will not be memorializing what he said to the jury on that day in March of 1980. If you want to read it, we will post it on our website, at www.defensediaries.com. And as far as Amaranti's goes, we'll only be summarizing what he said to the jury, as I contend that Mata Sr.'s opening statement was truly the closing argument for the defense. The timing was just off, as it was at the beginning of the case as opposed to at the end. But the sentiment of that statement was what needed to be argued to the jury. So Sullivan rises and delivers what I am sure was a stirring closing argument. It was lengthy, lasting approximately two and a half hours before it was all said and done. And it is a pretty interesting read, so you should check it out. But after Sullivan sits, it's then Sam Amaranti's turn 
to address the jury. Now, keep in mind that when you're listening to closing arguments in any case, that they are just that, arguments, unlike openings where you are familiarizing the jury with the narrative of the case and telling them what they can expect to hear during the case as far as witnesses and evidence goes, which is why I continue to say that my father's opening was really a closing because it was almost exclusively argument about why the jury should find Gacy insane. The closing arguments review the evidence that was presented and the attorneys then argue why their respective side should win the case. It is an exercise in persuasion. Now there is a lot of debate about how much effect closings have on a jury because I feel that most people have made up their mind before the closings ever occur. But for those people that may be on the fence, it is these folks where the closing can be the difference between winning and losing the case. So Amaranti, who's every bit of five foot tall, takes his place in front of the jury and begins. May it please the court, distinguished gentlemen of the prosecution, Mr. Mata, Mr. Gacy, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Excuse me while I move this back. People tell me I look too short here if I stand right up here in the front. I also want to commend and congratulate Mr. Sullivan for giving you, for giving all of these people in the courtroom, a fantastic and brilliant persuasive closing argument. But I must remind you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that's what that was, a closing argument. It's not evidence. That is the way that Mr. Sullivan sees the evidence in the case. Now, he made a number of inferences. He speculated a lot. As a matter of fact, he rarely talked about the evidence. Think about it. Think about his argument. He told you how manipulative Gacy was. He told you how Mr. Gacy planned the insanity defense. He told you how he fakes heart attacks. Did he plan the insanity defense all the way back in Iowa when he attacked Lynch back then? Did he plan to call himself Jack Hanley for this purpose in 1970? When he told Mike Reed that his portrait on the wall was his twin brother Jack, was he planning that far ahead? But I can tell by the way that you look. I can feel the tension in the courtroom in the last part of Mr. Sullivan's argument. He pointed at all the pictures. He slowly went through them. Murder, 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 murder. All that is to arouse your sympathy. Recall what Mr. Mata asked you way back in the beginning of this case. Please, ladies and gentlemen, you must not, you should not, you cannot consider sympathy in making your verdict. He tried to arouse your emotions. That is manipulation. He didn't talk about the evidence. He just tried to get your emotions aroused, your base emotions, your sympathy, and your anger. I felt the anger and the tension in this courtroom. He tried to get you to really hate my client. He tried to make him into an evil, vile, premeditated, rational man. Mr. Gacy is not an evil man. He's done some evil things. He's done some incredibly horrible things, but he tried so hard, so hard from when he was a little kid he tried so hard to be good. He tried to please his father, and he kept doing it throughout the course of his life. He kept trying and trying and trying. He became a clown. He became a precinct captain. He became a good husband and a good daddy. He wanted so hard to be good, but he could not be good because there was a bad side to him, an uncontrollable side. He was caged in his own flesh. He was eaten up by this raging disease in his mind. He just could not control that. He just could not control that. Mr. Sullivan talked about Mr. Gacy's memory. He talked about how good his memory was. How many victims did he talk about? He kept going over the same three or four victims all the time. Did he have a good memory? The man does have a good memory. His wife told you that. He is intelligent. The psychiatrist told you that. So when he can't remember the kind of details that the police were looking for, when he can't remember the kind of details that would help out, there's something wrong somewhere. 
He's remembering it like a dream. Think about the statements he gave to the police. He told them things as if they were coming out of a dream. Some things of the cases you remember physically, just like if you have a dream. Some you remember vividly. Sometimes you have a dream and you can remember parts of it. Other times you have a dream and you can't remember it at all. That's exactly the way Mr. Gacy related the story to the police, to the psychiatrist, to everybody. Mr. Sullivan didn't talk about these things. All he talked about is sympathy, anger, and hate. Hate Mr. Gacy. Hate him. Hate him. Hate him. Put him to death. Amaranti goes on to talk about the Salem witch trials and warning the jury not to be the impetus like the people back in 1692. Amaranti continues. Believe me, if vengeance, if passion, if sympathy would bring back any of these boys, if it would bring back John Buckovich or Daryl Sampson or Randall Reffitt or Samuel Stapleton or Michael Bonin or William Carroll or Rick Johnston or Gregory Godsick or John Zick or John Prestige or Matt Bowman or Robert Gilroy or John Mowry or Russell Nelson Robert Lynch, Tommy Bowling, David Talsma, William Kindred, Timothy O'Rourke, Frank Landigan, James Mazzara, or Robert Peast. You see them up there. If revenge or sympathy would bring back one of those boys, if just one of them could come and walk through the back of the courtroom right now, this minute, or if they could ever come back to life, Mr. Mata and I would join hands with you. We would join hands with you in putting Mr. Gacy to death and trundling him off to the side if we could exchange it. But we're not here to exchange. As Mr. Mata told you in his opening statement, unfortunately for all of us, the fact of death is a final one. No man is an island. And we all feel it. But again, we are here to decide the case based on the evidence, based on the facts as presented to you through the testimony from the witness stand. Now, while I'm at this point, I just wanted to tell you, whatever Mr. Sullivan says in his argument, that's also what I'm doing here. This is argument. This is not evidence. But this is the last time and really the only time the defense will be able to address you. Mr. Kunkel, I believe, or one of the members of the prosecution will have an opportunity after I'm finished to come back and explain or repeat or contradict whatever I say here. And you must keep in mind that no matter what any of us says, it's argument at this point. It's the way we see the facts, the evidence in the case. Do not construe it as evidence itself. Amaranti then goes on to go through all of the testimony, all of the witnesses of both the state and the defense. He does this, as every lawyer does in a closing argument, in order to attempt to get the jury to view each witness through the eyes of the attorney, in order to articulate or clarify the purpose and the context of each witness. He pours through the proof-of-life witnesses, the cops, the living victims, former employees, friends, neighbors, doctors, mothers, sisters, ex-wives, all of them, one by one, in order to convince them to take from their testimony what he believes should be taken from it. He goes through each of Gacy's statements, highlighting the aspects that the jury should glean from those statements that reflect Gacy's diseased mind. When it comes to the topic of Gacy's mind, whether it be diseased or not, Amaranti attempts to translate the testimony of all the doctors who testified one by one, distinguishing the vast differences of opinions presented to the jury by the doctors from each side. It's a cumbersome and lengthy process, as the total number of hours that the jury has been listening to the closing arguments nears the five-hour mark, Amaranti asks the jury to hang on for just a bit longer 
as he's nearing the end of his argument. Quote, he collected the bodies. Mr. Mata told you that he collected, he lived with them. He showed no emotion. He showed no nervousness when the police were in there. He ate over the bodies in his crawl space. His dining room was over a body. It, it wasn't even in the crawl space. It was under the dining room floor, under about six inches of dirt. Is this a sane man? Is that an evil man? I don't know how that man could live in that house with all those bodies for all those years. Mr. Sullivan said that he could do it because he worked in a mortuary when he was 18 or 19 years old. The people in the mortuary weren't killed by him or destroyed by him. How could a man live that way? Not one or two bodies, but all of the bodies. And when did he stop burying the bodies? When he ran out of room. Is that a plan? That is typical compulsive pattern. What does he do? He finds a bridge on I-55. He finds a bridge out there. So the next five, if there are only five, God only knows how many there are, but he throws them off. Each one of them at the same point, the same bridge, the same point all the time. Repetitive, compulsive behavior. That is no plan. That is a pattern. Amaranti then reads a passage from Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, highlighting the similarities between his client and the duality of the character from the Stevenson book. Amaranti concludes his argument with the following statement. Bob Egan ended his opening statement with the words, God help us all if another man like John Gacy walks among us. Well, if you don't want to find out, if you don't want to have them studied, if you don't want to learn why, God help all of us. Because there probably is going to be another John Gacy walking among us. Putting him away won't prevent anything. Punishment won't deter a madman. The next mass murderer out there, do you think that making an example of John Gacy will help? It won't deter him. It didn't deter John Gacy. He couldn't control his conduct. He couldn't control his evil. But just like Jekyll, not being able to control Hyde, and eventually Hyde took over. And Jekyll lost it more and more and more. And then eventually the evil side of Jekyll's personality took over beyond the control of the good side, beyond the control of the good side. Do the right thing, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Don't decide this case with hate, with revenge, with passion and fear. Commit yourselves to the laws. Perform your duty well as jurors. Look at all the evidence. And when you look at the whole picture, you will find that the state has not met their burden of proving Mr. Gacy was sane beyond a reasonable doubt. We expect you to return a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity. On behalf of Mr. Motto, Mr. Gacy, and myself, I would like to thank you again for being such an attentive jury. I would indicate that our work is now on the verge of being over. Your work is just beginning. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Mentally exhausted, Amaranti takes a seat, and Garippo ends the day for the jury, explaining that they will hear the rebuttal closing of Bill Kunkel tomorrow, and then deliberations will begin. Congratulations on being 66% of the way through episode 33 of Defense Diaries, season one, The Gacy Tapes. You're almost there. On Monday, this Monday, February, fucking whatever the date is, part three of three will be available for you to complete the episode, the season, game set match, all that. Thanks for listening and giving Bob's old ass something to talk about. 
other than his socks. Talk to y'all next time. All right.